After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his blood into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard this angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who would par over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Um. Thanks, David. And uh, can I add my welcome to Joel? It's great to be uh, with you um, again this week. Um, I, I have a friend. He's part of our church family um, and he was a bit tired one day at work um, in the afternoon. He could feel himself just struggling to concentrate. His eyes were beginning to kind of droop and hold closed just slightly longer than is acceptable. Um, and so he decided, do you know what? Next meeting wasn't for half an hour. 
he just grabbed 10 minutes, a quick power nap. Um, maybe some of you have taken up midday napping um, over lockdown, much easier to do when you work from home and uh, just take a, a quick lie down and then straight back to work, refreshed. Anyway, this was pre-COVID, um, if you can remember life back then. So uh, he had to duck under his desk and he just lay down on the floor and he was gone straight away, out like a light. Three hours later, um, he emerged, slightly shocked to see the time. I like to imagine untidy hair, glasses a bit askew. Obviously too late for his meeting and probably the meeting after that as well. Um, maybe some confused looks from other people in the office who hadn't realized he was there. Um, or maybe some knowing looks from people in the office who knew he was there because they'd been listening to him snoring. I don't really know the details, so um, some of that is artistic license, but uh, fortunately he's senior counsel at a leading law firm in London, so he did not lose his job, he was fine, um, but probably not many of us could get away with that without some repercussions. Well, falling asleep at work is one thing, Falling asleep in the spiritual battle appears to be quite another. In fact, take your clothes off, get into bed spiritually, and you might wake up to the wrath of God. Our passage today um, is another hard-hitting one. Um, it's another cycle in the book of Revelation. Some very obvious similarities to the seven seals and the seven trumpets, if you remember those. Um, here we have seven angels with seven plagues in seven bowls. And they were actually introduced briefly last week. Uh, we slightly jumped over them. Uh, chapter 15, verse one said, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So we have another passage today about God's judgment. Um, this is preparation for the end of the world. But I hope at the same time you think of it as preparation for every day of your life. Um, I hope that's what you found the whole book of Revelation to be. Uh, not just a glimpse of your future, but also a perspective shift for every remaining day of your life. And John seems to think that we do need some repetition. Uh, we need to think about it again from another angle. Not because God gets a kick out of scaring us, but because he loves us. These words are supposed to be a blessing to us. The danger is real and significant. He needs us to get it so that we stay awake, so that we're not caught napping when this day comes. And we saw it at the end of last week, if you remember, um, crucial to understanding judgment rightly is seeing the justice of it. Um, so our first point is God's judgment is fair. Um, and those those verses that, that Joel read out um, as we began, the song of Moses, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Did you see echoes of that song in the verses that David read for us? Uh, if you look at verses four to seven, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you. O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they 
deserve. The judgment fits the crime. God's enemies have a taste for blood. So he gives them nothing but blood to drink. And notice the altar itself seems to agree with the angel's assessment. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. So why do we have such doubts? Why do we struggle so much with this? When I first moved to, to London, I went to a church which treated the Bible quite differently to the way that we're uh, reading it together today. Uh, one Sunday, we sang the song In Christ Alone, um, which you probably know. Um, they had changed a line. You might have come across it before. Rather than singing, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Um, they changed it to, and on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They swapped out wrath for love. Um, and I noticed that that was different to the version I knew. So I asked the man next to me and he said very unashamedly, oh, well, we don't believe in that sort of theology here. A God of wrath was not how he liked to think of God. Uh, a God of judgment was not welcome in their theology. And I was just a, a student at the time, but I probably should have challenged that a little bit. Uh, why does it matter? how we like to think of God. Why would that make any difference at all to who God really is? God made us, not the other way around. We don't get to refashion God. We don't get to give him a makeover or paint over the bits we don't like or we don't understand. And yet it's a problem I see in myself as well. Um, a couple of months ago, I was running a Hope Explored course for a, a bunch of uh, lovely people investigating Christianity. And second week in, the topic was God's judgment at sin. Um, I could feel myself getting a little bit embarrassed to say we will all face God in judgment. Why was I embarrassed? I know justice is good. We cannot stand a, a miscarriage of justice, whether it's government ministers breaking their own lockdown rules or um, the referee making the wrong call in a match which changes the whole course of the game, right up to much more serious injustices like, for example, the bloodshed here in verse six. We're not against justice per se. We're just not always sure God's judgment is just. It's so universal, so terrifying, so all-inclusive. Well, John mentions the, the song of Moses in 15 verse three. That's probably the song Moses sang in the book of Deuteronomy where he says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. But Moses goes on in that song immediately to say they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Moses sang that about the Israelites, but all of us are the same. We forget the God who gave us life and breath and everything. His wrath is totally justified. We simply fail to adequately grasp how evil it is to forget our creator. And even on a small scale, I guess, when was the last time you heard someone in your office credit God with their success? or when a business deal goes well, um, or when 
someone gets a promotion. One of the guys who comes to the, the Eastern Lunchtime Talks um, said that he's been trying to say praise God more in his emails when something has been done well, just to see how that will go down. How long do you think it will be before that gets reported, I wonder? Jonathan Edwards described sin as cosmic treason, not just forgetfulness, but deliberate rebellion. What would you say was justice in that situation? And are you fit to judge? Maybe we struggle with it because we imagine God pouring out his wrath on people who regret their decision. They cry out for mercy and he just won't listen. It's not actually the picture that we get in verses eight and nine. Did you notice the when the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire? They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And the pattern's repeated in verses 10 and 11. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. No one who faces God's judgment on this day will repent. In fact, they will reject him all the more strongly. So what would you say was justice in that situation? And are you fit to judge? I suggest we have to listen to Jesus and the angel and the altar. God's judgment is fair, just. It is what we deserve. But while some of that might feel a bit like revision, kind of maybe you've seen that before, um, it is reiterated and it needs to be reiterated because it's increasingly important to accept. The stakes are higher here. You might have noticed over the course of Revelation that the cycles are zooming in, getting closer and closer to final judgment. Did you notice the build-up when the seven seals were opened? Death was given authority over a quarter of the earth. When the seven trumpets were blown, a third was given over to destruction. But there's no more fractions here, no more limits. This time, God's judgment is final. And it's deliberately similar. Lots of it's in the same order. Earth, sea, rivers, heavens. Similar references to the plagues of Egypt, disease, water turning to blood, darkness, frogs. Which draws our attention to the significant thing that has changed. This is not a rewind back through the same events. All seven of these bowls describe the end. And there are actually a number of reasons to think that's the case. I've put a couple on the handout if you want to check them yourself, but um, let me point out just a couple for us. Um, so first, if you were to flick back to chapter 11, at the end of the trumpets, verse 19 says, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. So it seems like chapters 15 and 16 zoom in on that verse. In chapter 15, where our reading began, the sanctuary in the tent of the witness, sorry, the sanctuary in the tent of witness in heaven was opened. 
And that is the moment when the seven plagues are handed out. All seven of these bowls come at the end. And we also get a much more extended description of the seventh bowl compared to normal. 16 verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And the verses that follow that show this kind of decreation. Cities fall, islands flee, mountains disappear. And verse 21, great hailstones. With these, the wrath of God is finished. It is done. Another obvious reason to think that this is slightly different to what's come before. I think increasingly the cycles have given more clarity on that period of time in the middle where we live while justice is being delayed. How long, O oh Lord, before you gather? before you judge, not until the full number of my people has been gathered. He said back in ele chapter 11, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Chapter 14, then I saw an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Each time history is on hold while the witness goes out, justice delayed, until the number's complete. But there is no more delay in chapter 16. The judgment here is not interrupted. God does not hold back. And that's because time's up. And so instead of the delay, verses 13 to 16 describe the final battle. Revelation's unholy trinity rear their ugly heads, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They unleash from their mouths, Three unclean spirits like frogs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And verse 16 tells us they assembled them at a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. I imagine uh, most of us have probably heard of Armageddon before, even if it just conjures up images of Bruce Willis. Um, there are plenty of other end of the world movies that you could choose from, but uh, this is obviously where the film Armageddon gets its name. As you'd expect, it's a film about the impending end of the world. Except in that film, they manage to avoid it. They avoid the end of the world. In fact, it's a great world unifying moment as people from all over the globe celebrate their survival. There will be no escape for the human race at the real Armageddon. And I don't know about you, but I think I am in danger of thinking that Judgment Day could be avoided. In particular, that it's not really getting closer. Um, I, I realise time is passing, so in theory we're closer to the end than we were before. But fairly easy to think it probably won't happen in my time. Which I think quickly becomes that it probably won't ever actually happen. A bit like a, an asymptote. Does anyone remember their A-level maths? Um, the, the lines that, that kind of get theoretically nearer and nearer as we get to the Day of Judgment, but the lines just never cross. They never actually meet. And I wonder if that's what you're banking on for friends, colleagues, family. Maybe they'll be OK because 
maybe no one ever actually has to experience Judgment Day. These verses, I don't think, give us that option. And God the Almighty personally guarantees it. Verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. It's one of the most common ways Jesus described his return in the Gospels. And his voice breaks in here to, to be sure that we don't miss the application to us. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. I dressed for Judgment Day. The end of the world is coming. Uh, imagine you were told to be ready tonight. Would you just climb into bed? Well, when the alarms go off, you'll be hauled out into the streets, naked and exposed, conscripted to fight in a battle on the guaranteed losing side. The devil assembles his doomed army. And you'll see in chapters 17 to 19, those are an action replay of that final battle. Jesus has already given you the garments you need so that you are totally safe on this terrifying day. Garments which, right back at the start of Revelation, some Christians from the church in Sardis had soiled by tolerating and, and adopting false teaching. Garments Jesus urged the complacent, self-sufficient Christians in Laodicea to buy from him so that their shame and their nakedness may not be seen. Do you remember the robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb? It's an image, and I wonder if we could really benefit from imagining it more. As you get dressed in the morning, um, I don't know whether you still have to dress smartly. Some of you are looking slightly smarter than others. Um, but maybe as you head back into the office and you have to put on your seat or your work clothes, um, just think, uh, actually, I, I'm not taking off the garments Jesus has given me in order to put on something more kind of socially acceptable or something more popular. These garments are your life. Don't take them off because it's all getting a bit too intense and you'd like to dial down your commitment to Jesus. These garments are your life. They identify you as his on the great day of God the Almighty. And I don't think this is really feasible, but um, it would be a, a very clear reminder of your allegiance and your future security if you actually dressed each day in a white robe and worked hard to try and keep that clean, especially if you only had a choice between that and going naked and exposed. Those are the options for Judgment Day. You can be clothed in Jesus's righteousness or wear nothing at all, sin on display. And it should therefore amaze us the assurance and security these garments give us is invaluable considering what that day will be like. These garments are your impenetrable shield. They're plague resistant, sin erasing, bought for you at the highest price. Stay awake. Don't take them off. Because Jesus could return at any moment. And his judgment will be fair and final. Can I pray? Lord God, the Almighty, 
true and just are your judgments. And we do pray that this glimpse of judgment day would make us worship you. Would we repent and give you glory? Would it change how we think about every day that you've given us? And we do pray particularly, please help us to stay awake and hold on tightly to the garments you've given us, that we might be totally safe on that day. In Jesus' name. Amen.